0: Thank you for giving to our church, not just to our church, but to the kingdom of God. The greatest investment you can ever make is by knitting your heart to and putting your treasures into the kingdom of God. And what we do here every single week, uh, every season is in preparation for that kingdom. And there's no season that is more about anticipating that kingdom uh, Than this one. And uh, if you're familiar with um, our traditions and our uh, services this time of year, you know that we often refer to this season. And this season in the church world is called Advent. Um, Advent is the season of the year uh, taken up by the four Sundays before Christmas in which the church prepares to celebrate. Two different comings of Jesus. Uh, The first coming uh, that, of course, uh, we celebrate his incarnation at Bethlehem. And the second coming, his future coming in glory when he will bring restoration to the world, judgment toward the enemy, and salvation to all who have believed. Uh, Advent is a time for serious reflection uh, on both comings of Christ, that Christ has come and that he is coming again. It's just like your favorite movie that may have a sequel that happened or is coming one day. Christmas has a sequel. Christmas has a part two. We celebrate the first part this time of year, but we look forward to the day when Jesus will come again, not as a baby, but as a conquering, saving king. Uh, To help get us in the Advent spirit and prepare us for Christmas, I've asked once again some of our families and some of our uh, kids in our church to help us leading and lighting the Advent wreath. Uh, And I would like to ask Stephanie, Kane, and Kate, um, who will lead us as a church um, in lighting the first candle of Advent. As we come to light the first candle of Advent, we remember the words of Micah the prophet, But you, O Bethlehem, are too little to be among the clans of Judah, and you shall come forth from me, who is the ruler in Israel, whose is coming forth is from old, from ancient, from ancient days. We light the first candle of Advent to remind us to look up and center our thoughts upon the loving God who sent his Son who is coming again. All of our hope is anchored in him even so come Lord Jesus, even so come. Thank y'all so much. Let me pray for everybody. Heavenly Father, we give you this day in the next four weeks in adoration and devotion to your Son, Jesus, who you sent to save us from our sins. We are humbled knowing that this season, which is for your utmost and highest glory, is also for our greatest and our eternal good. We do not deserve the promise of Christmas, yet we graciously come before you today, hoping to receive and rejoice in its fullness. Amen. Let's give Stephanie Everett and Kane and Kate a hand this morning for leading us. We're thankful that the light of God burns bright even still. Uh, I'm thankful for so many things when it comes to God's design for his church. And and, and I'm thankful that he gives us things to enable us and assist us in our walks with him. Uh, you know, we are visual learners. We are visual creatures, right? Uh, are, we rely on our senses. And, and I'm especially thankful for the signs and symbols that he gives us uh, in his word that we might have these tangible uh, reminders to aid our worship and our focus on him. And, and as we begin this special season, which offers us so much, I, I'm thrilled that today's message, I think is bookended uh, by what rests on this table, uh, the light that we just lit Uh, and the elements that we will take at the end of our time. For centuries, the church has been gathering together on mornings like this, lighting candles, celebrating communion, both of which are gifts from God's Word uh, that help to flesh out our faith, to help visualize what we believe uh, and make it more personal. Uh, While the words of mere men like myself don't do justice, the grace and love of our God, I hope that these pictures and these symbols and the power of the Holy Spirit can do wonders for our souls today and over the next couple of weeks. And I'm confident that if we'll embrace what the Holy Spirit is showing us today and over the next couple of weeks, they absolutely will and we absolutely will arrive. At a closer place with Jesus uh, to continue our worship this morning I would love for you to open your Bibles if you have one I would love for you to open up to Isaiah chapter 40 uh, kind of in the middle of the Old Testament uh, we're going to read verses 1 through 9 and then jump over to verse 27 and read the conclusion of the chapter uh, this is a familiar passage if you're with us the most uh, most Advent seasons we uh, find our way to Isaiah 40 this is one of the uh, one of the the anchor passages in the Bible that that uh, look forward to the coming of Christ and, and celebrates what that means for us and the promise that it, uh, that it gives to us, that God has made to us. And, and, and I think it especially punctuates what this light means to us today. So if you've found your place in your Bibles, Isaiah 40, uh, listen to God's word, verses 1 through 9. Uh, Isaiah says, "Comfort, Yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem. And cry out to her that her warfare is ended. Her iniquity is pardoned. For she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Or a double provision. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight the in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted. Every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked place shall be made straight. And the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken and, and listen to what the Lord speaks to us today the voice said cry out and he said what shall i cry out all flesh is grass. All its loveliness, its flower uh, of the field, the grass withers, the flower fades. Because the breath of the Lord blows upon it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God and the promises of our God stands forever If you underline or highlight in your Bibles, that's a verse to highlight today. The grass withers, the world may fade away, but God's promises stand forever. And we stand because of that. O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up on the high mountains. O Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up and be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Or another way to say it would be, Your God is now here. He has come to be with you. Jump down to verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over by my God. Have you not known, have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, uh, the creator of the ends of the earth? Neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak, To those who have no might, he increases their strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary. The young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord, they shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint just preaches for itself, doesn't it? God's word is so good. Uh, and, and I hope that regardless of what your relationship with, is with God and what your context is for being here today, I hope that you let these words speak into your heart this morning. I hope you let this light burn for you today. You know, we lit this light in hope because it, and it burns to remind us of hope. And that's what the first candle of Advent uh, symbolizes. It stands for and it communicates the hope that we have in God. Now, hope is a word that we all use, but I think a lot of times we use it in the wrong way and, and not because we're, not, not to pick on anybody. I think we just kind of, sometimes words lose their meaning over the years and, and sometimes they, we kind of uh, use them in place of other words and we mean one thing, but we say another thing. And I think hope is a word that we misconstrue and we confuse with uh, a different word. In our modern English language, hope is often just a synonym for wish that we often say, um, I hope that happens, uh, but we have no uh, confidence that it will and, and we have no uh, no assurance that it will, but we say it like, I hope that happens and we're really just saying, I wish it would happen. And, and, and there's no proof that it's going to, uh, there, there's, no, uh, there's no basis for it potentially happening. We just say, I wish that would come true. And, and we use the word hope like we use the word wish. And and, and you know, if, if if you've grew up, you know, uh, as a kid and, and you watch a lot of the entertainment that, that's out there for kids and, and, and I and I'm guilty of it myself, that a lot of that is kind of built on this premise of just wishing and wishing and wishing and, and, and there's no there's no basis for it. It's just kind of this idea that, that maybe if I wish hard enough. Something will happen that will be good for me. Uh, but, but, but in its oldest form and in, it, in its biblical form, as in the, the language, uh, the, the, in the oldest, before the language was kind of diluted as it has been today, hope uh, from the Hebrew and, and the Greek word that, that we get it from, uh, it, it means something different and it means something better. Hope is defined like this. To desire with expectation of obtainment or fulfillment. Uh, hope is to expect with confidence. So that there's a big difference between wishing and hoping, right? That we wish and, and we may not ever see it. We may not ever receive it. It may not ever happen because there was no basis for it to ever happen at all. But when we hope in something or when we hope for something, the idea there is that we have some sort of confidence that it's already a likely, it's already a possibility, that it's likely to be a reality. So I'm a stickler about the definition there because there's a big difference, right, between I wish and I hope. Now, I want to clarify this because Christian hope and the hope of Advent and the hope of Christmas is not a mere wish. We're not, it's not some act of willing something into existence on an unfounded basis. No, hope is an expectation, An anticipation that is built on trust, that is anchored in promise. And we've lit this first candle today with confidence in a promise from God. Just like we gather week after week and rise up day after day with confidence in God's plan, trusting in God's word to us. Not how we feel or not what we think or not based on our experience, but based on something that is older than us and more reliable than us. God's word to us. Now Christianity and the promise that we celebrate during this season is not superstition where we rely on chance or fate to work together. Christianity is rooted in the promises from God, promises that are anchored and fulfilled in the Christmas season especially. So that's why we call this prelude to Christmas Advent. Advent means anticipation. It means eagerness. Uh, we eagerly await Christmas with confidence that, uh, that, that this hope that we have uh, is, is not just some mere wishful thinking. No, our God is trustworthy. Now, the reason why partaking in these traditions year after year is so important is because our confidence wavers, doesn't it? Our confidence wavers. Our flesh grows weary, and our eyes get dim, and we lose focus on God, uh, what He has said, and what He has proven with His actions. The reason why a lot of people aren't here today, it, it, maybe they used to be in places like this, is because their confidence has gotten weary. There, there's people that you know that they say like they say things like, "I used to believe," or "I want to believe," or "I, you know, I, I had an experience in the past, but I've." Just just kind of fell away from it is because our flesh gets weary and the reason why you and me and all of us are no better that we may also fall away or we may also uh, you know fall back in our confidence we are as likely and come on we all do this from time to time we lose our confidence we uh, we get discouraged and it's important that we have a light that brings our attention back to God the goal of every advent is to renew our hope and embolden our confidence so that no matter what we face, we keep our eyes on Jesus. We keep our eyes on his promises. We keep our eyes on his light. Listen, if God is not actively pursuing us and drawing us in, we will lose hope and we will lose confidence because we will turn away. So we need this light today to bring us back. You know, this time of year often brings foggy mornings and foggy early evenings. Darkness comes in and lingers longer as December prolongs. It's easy to lose sight of what's promised uh, for us up ahead because we can't see a few yards in front of us. And when you can't see uh, at a distance, you, you, you can lose confidence that there's something good waiting for you or there's some pathway for you to go now uh these advent services our christmas celebrations go a long way i think in breaking through that darkness and bringing the light of heaven to our limited vision The goal of these services is that we learn not to stress over what we cannot see and focus on what God has brought directly before our line of sight. I encourage you today, look at this candle. Look at this light. Don't look at the darkness. There's plenty of darkness around it, but it's the light that we need to keep our eyes on. Listen, the hardest lesson I've had to learn and walking outside at night. I don't like being outside at night because I can't see very well, and, and I, I'm, I'm so stubborn, and I think all of us are like this, that when we are using a flashlight or a lantern, uh, it, it, we, we are still so focused on trying to see farther down the, the path, but... The light that we have will illuminate what's immediately around us. It will give us the ability to see within a certain sphere of our bodies, right? But our stubborn flesh wants to see down the path, wants to see through the darkness. But our eyes are never going to be able to see that far. But the light right in front of us gives us confidence that our pathway is lit, now, you and I want to be able to see hundreds and hundreds of yards away, but, but I hate to break this to you because, hey, I'm wearing glasses. So I'm, I'm right there with you. Our flesh, as it wearies, cannot see very clearly. So we need to be thankful that there's a light right in front of us that may not show us where we're going to be 100 yards down the path, but shows us where our next step should or should not go. Now, isn't it true that we can become so obsessed with knowing what's way out there that we don't watch our steps and that's why we fall? All the while, there was a light that would have showed us where we should go next or where we shouldn't go next, but we were so focused on seeing farther. Advent invites you, invites me, to trust God in the darkness, in the unknown, in the uncomfortable And even though we don't know what's up ahead, we know what's right in front of us. Right in front of us is this candle that burns with hope. And the promise that comes with that light, the hope that we have because of that light is that God is with us. Not because we've asked for him to be here or because we've deserved him to be here or we've done enough for him to be here. He is with us because he has done something for us out of his own goodness. That you can't undo, that you can't change, that nothing we can do has even an effect on it. God is with us because he says so. We aren't confident because we know where we're going. We aren't confident because we know where we are. We aren't confident because we feel good or uh, we have done something good. We are confident and we have hope because God has put his light right in front of us. The invitation of Advent is that we would cling to this hope, that we would respond to the promise that God has made to us, that he has come to be with us. And because of what he started 2,000 years ago, he will never leave us. And one day he will physically bring us to where he is. And until that day comes, until he arrives again, his light is here with us to guide us and comfort us, to give us peace on earth. Until though, the scripture bids us to wait on Lord or put our hope in the Lord Isaiah's word gives us confidence that God is trustworthy that we can hope in him so we don't need to look for help or rest anywhere else because it's right here as he says in verse 9 God is now here the world hasn't always had this hope. Isaiah actually begins this chapter acknowledging that his generation was in complete darkness and didn't know what to what what we know about the Lord. But he promises them in verse number one, he says, I give you comfort. God says, if I, Isaiah, I want you to give my people one thing and it's comfort because they are uncomfortable. They are confused. They are lost. They are wearied. They are fading away. They are confused about which way to go and what is going to happen next. So, I bring you a word of comfort. It's what you and I need the most, isn't it? It's what we long for. It's why we come to places like this, right? And yeah, there's times we're challenged, but that's all for the point of being comforted by God to give us something that we need the most. God brings them a word of comfort. And look, listen to the promises that He says Israel can depend on or look forward to that her warfare is going to end, her iniquity is going to be pardoned. And then in verse 3, the Crooked place is going to be made straight. So there's three promises here. The war will end. Sin will be removed. The lost can and will find their way. I don't know what kind of battle you're facing today, but a lot of us are fighting battles. You've got battles in your mind, battles in your flesh. You've got battles around you. Everybody here is fighting a battle. It may be because something you went through as a child, something you went through as a young adult, something you went through in a previous marriage, something you're going through in your current marriage. It may be a battle with your health, a battle with some sort of you know, external situation in the world it may be a lot of different kind of battles but everybody here regardless of how kind of image we put on everybody is fighting a battle but the promise to God, from God to us is the battle is going to end one day the war will end are we going to come out so we can clean without a few bruises and without a few cuts hey that's not the promise the promise is the war is going to end that you can trust in the God who says to you and he says to me I am going to end this battle for you but you gotta keep your eyes on me because I'm gonna end it my way and I'm gonna end it through my way and it's not gonna go the way you think it might would go. It's not gonna happen the way you might would plan it to happen, but if you want victory, you've gotta to listen to me. You've gotta follow this light the war will end sin will be removed now what is the the message there is that the guilt you have for your own sin god will wash it away the shame you have because of your own sin god can wash that away the slavery you have because of sin and to sin god will break those chains the damage that sin is causing on the world god's going to break those chains and clean that mess up one day right now it's not yet right now we're still in the battle right now we're still fighting the war. But the promise from God is, I'm gonna do something to my own son to show you just how determined I am to get rid of sin. How violent it is, how dangerous it is, how damaging it is, but how I can and I only can remove it. God promises the lost can and will find their way. The light will show us the way, but only the light. Now, what we're going with this is gonna, I think, challenge all of us but I think we need to be challenged in this this morning because if we're gonna get comfort, we've gotta get our eyes on the light. Uh, Isaiah tells the world that one day there wouldn't be any question to, as to where God was and where we stood with him. Yet that day was far off for his generation. He's riding 700 years before Christmas. Just as the nation of Israel was about to descend in its most dark and most, uh, most distraught place where they would be scattered and would be in bondage. Listen, I want to talk about something very serious for the next little bit, and it's easy to roll our eyes at this, and it's easy to chalk all this up as I'm a preacher and this is church, so of course you're saying that. But but I really think that our generation needs to hear this more than ever. And, and I, don't, I, I hesitate to say that our generation needs it more than the last generation because God wrote this to a generation about 2,700 years ago that needed it just as bad. So I think that every generation is just as lost. Every generation is just as broken. Every generation is just as in need of salvation, right? So let's not, let's not say, oh, well, I don't know about this one. Now listen, we need it just like they needed it. And what God said to them is just as true for us. So God loved the nation of Israel. I think if you know the Old Testament, you know that God picked them out of nowhere. He chose them against all odds. He made them something. He brought them from a, a tribe to a nation. He brought them through many miracles and he made them a, a, a powerful, successful, prosperous nation. God loved the nation of Israel. He gave them a great land to inhabit and build up. He gave them riches and possessions and treasures. But, but I, wanna, I wanna break the news to you about how that went. Because yeah, God gave all that to them but the same God that gave all this to Israel also took it all away. You know the story. He gave them through Abraham and Moses and and Joshua. He gave them a land. He built them up in the land. Houses they didn't build, wells they didn't dig, vineyards they didn't plant, riches and treasures untold. He gave them a king named David. He gave them a greater king named Solomon. It was all uh, uh, as good as they could ever ask, and then it all was taken from them. And the one who took it from them, listen, God took it from them. Now, I know, I know, uh, uh, there, there's, 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 there's sin and, and there's rebellion, but I want you to listen to the, how the story goes. Yes, they sinned and rebelled against God, but the subtext of the underlying message of the Old Testament w- was something more important than that. Uh, it, 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 the message of the Old Testament wasn't, hey, if you stop sinning, God will give you all your blessings back, because that's not how the story goes, because that's not the message. The message of the Old Testament and the message of the Bible is something more serious than that. The message that God was trying to get across to Israel uh, was this. Their heart's greatest desire wasn't, in fact, land. It wasn't, in fact, success. It wasn't, in fact, treasure. It wasn't, in fact, prosperity. It wasn't security. And it wasn't the happiness that they thought they could have with all those things. God gave all those things to Israel. Make no mistake about it. But then he took it all away from Israel. And the reason why he gave it to them and took it all away from them was so they might would understand what their heart desires the most is none of those things. Hear me? Listen, we want the war to end, don't we? We want the battle to end. We want, we want victory. If we want victory, we've got to understand how we get it. We've got to understand how we keep our eyes on the light. Because if we don't realize this and come to terms with this and, and, and embrace this, we will always be distracted. They thought that the key to their happiness and their well being and the greatest desire they had was found in the land and the treasure and the prosperity and all those things that we read about in 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings. God gave them all those things, but, but here's the catch He gave them these things to prove to them that they wanted something more than these. Will you say those four words for me in yellow? Something more than these. God gave them these things, but then he took away those things to prove to them they wanted something more. Listen, this candle is lit in hope and for the hope we have in Jesus and the hope we have from God. I want to make sure that we're hoping in the right direction today God took all that away from Israel because even though they had it all they weren't content with any of it they were discontent and they became overcome by anxiety and stress y'all know about that don't you they became distracted by trying to take care of all those things and manage all those things and keep all those things God built them up with great kings, great economies, great homes, great families, great everything you could ever asked for, and yet the same God took it all away from them. He told, he sold them in the bondage. He made them slaves to another empire. He put them into refugee camps. He scattered them from their families. And what Isaiah is writing about, he's writing to the generation that was about to lose it all, and he's trying to make them aware that it's a good thing you're about to lose all this stuff. Because God's going to get your attention through all this. You think, well, we've got to hold on to this or we won't have the things that we think we need. But Isaiah's trying to get them to understand that God's about to rip this band-aid off and it's going to feel uncomfortable, but it's actually going to bring you comfort. He sold them. He gave them up. He took them out of the land so so that they would understand that their hope was never in, it was never this ideal version of Israel. They thought that was what they needed, and they were always trying to get back to it. I want to underscore this a hundred times. The hope for America in Americans is not some ideal version of America. The hope for your family is not this ideal version of your family. The hope for you is not the dream version of you. That's not going to fulfill you, and it's not going to give you peace. Peace. Everything can be right from the top to bottom in your life, just like it was for Israel at this time. But it's like Isaiah told them, all of that is fleeting. All of that is temporary. And he says to them in verse number six, seven, and eight, he says, all flesh is grass. The grass withers, the flower fades. And what does verse seven say? It's the breath of God that blows it away. So why are they losing it? Because God is taking it from them. He's making them aware the grass withers, the flower fades, but he's trying to anchor their hope in his word and his promises. Do you read that? Do you see that? Comparing what they think they need to what they actually need. And he says to them that if our heart is all in the temporary, we have no hope. We're just wishing in the impossible. We're wishing that things that we know good and well cannot hold us up and will not support us spiritually, like the, the actual important part of our souls. That's what the story was to Israel. That's what God's story is with Israel. God catered to their flesh because they thought that there was nothing to them beyond their flesh, blood, and bones. But he did all that to reveal that there was something deeper in all of them. There was something deeper Intangible, invisible, the most demanding part though, and that is their souls and their desire for God. And God took Israel to the top of the mountain and then brought them to the lowest valley to prove to them that if our hearts are knit to what we taste and feel and see, we're just wish-making. If our hearts are knit to the things that we see and taste and feel in this world, then we're just a bunch of wish-makers, trying to make something happen that never will or won't last. Come on, we've seen those Christmas movies. We know how how, how it doesn't work like that in the real world. That's not to say there isn't a splendor or spirit to Christmas. It's a very real spirit, but it's better than what we've settled for. God is trying to give us a hope that will never fail us and will always keep us full. Because all the stuff we usually anchor our hearts to, it's running into a vessel that's cracked, a vessel that can't hold it. And nobody's more aware of that than us, right? As soon as the right administration gets in power, it's time to work on the next campaign to make sure that lasts forever. As soon as you move into your dream home, it's time to maintain it. As soon as you surround yourself with the perfect family and friends, it's time to protect it. As soon as you finish an awesome vacation, it's time to plan another one. Come on, we know how fleeting prosperity and security and happiness are. And that's why no matter how much we have going our way, we worry and we stress over all of it. And that's why God gave Israel the perfect kingdom to prove to them just how imperfect and fleeting It actually was. As things were unraveling in Isaiah's day, everyone was longing for the glory days, but Isaiah doesn't offer them a false hope by saying those days are coming back because that's not what they needed. When you think about the glory days of Israel, you probably think about King David or maybe King Solomon, his son, if that's not what you think about, it's what they thought about, absolutely. Uh, Solomon ruled around 950 BC, a few years before, a few years after, and things were okay for a few generations after he was gone, but around 720 BC to 70 AD, so over 700 years, Israel basically spent every day longing and wishing and waiting for the glory of Solomon to return. But, but can I tell you a little secret? As golden as those days appear to have been, all that glittered in Solomon's kingdom was actually fool's gold. If you read 1 Kings, the text goes on and on about how rich Israel was and how prosperous all the people were and how Solomon was so rich and he pumped all his money into the kingdom, propped up all the people. The scripture says they had all that, nope, that silver was considered to be common and and, and considered to be uh, unvaluable because everybody had the gold standard. Uh, Wealth came to everyone across the boards. The nations were jealous of Israel and they were afraid to mess with Israel because they knew they'd be outspent. But 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 tucked away in the text, tucked away in the text as if it foreshadows and exposes the hollowness of all this prosperity, the deceptiveness of all of what Solomon appeared to have as success and prosperity, the deceptiveness of all of that is exposed in a little verse that nobody knows about, nobody talks about, but I think we should pay attention to. 1 Kings 10 14 says the weight of the gold that, Sol- that came to Solomon in one year or came to Solomon's kingdom in one year was 666 talents of gold. And, and let me just translate that for you. That's a lot of money. That's enough money to fund generations of Americans, right? We're the richest country in the world, but we're also the most expensive country in the world. That's a lot of money that would fund the entire existence of this country for years and years and years at a time and feed everybody in the kingdom. But that number, the Bible has something to say about that number, doesn't it? And you're students of the Bible, you know what Revelation goes on to do with this number. It associates that with the evil, beastly kingdoms of the world that have no regard for your best interest and only wanna keep you from obtaining true commitment with God. Revelation states it overtly, but it's subtly mentioned in Solomon's day. And Israel didn't realize this in the middle of it, but we realize it in hindsight. Here's what God's saying to me and you. You think the ideal version of your life with all the prosperity, all the success, all the things that you think, the material you need, you think that's what you need? You think that's where your hope is? That the machine that funded Solomon's Israel was actually toxic and poison demonic if you read the rest of Solomon's story it's not so subtle he sells his soul to maintain this prosperity and he loses it all anyway and the same man would go on to write this the richest man in the world that ever has lived ever will live the same man would teach us to pray like this Remove from me, far, far from me, falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me or that is necessary for every day, lest I be full and say, who is the Lord? Lest I deny him. Do, do you think the fact that this comes from the man who lived on the highest mountain of the greatest mountain range, don't you think that should get our attention a little bit? Solomon figured it out. God only took him to the top to show him that there's a greater existence that isn't measured by the metrics of this world that is found in a heart that is anchored in, that is anchored all of his hope in the Lord where there is contentment and peace and joy and true spiritual fulfillment. Now, listen, as we wrap all this up, I, I know that's, that's something, that's an icy wind that you may feel like isn't really what you wanna hear or what feels good to hear. But there's something deep down in your souls that needs to hear what Isaiah says. The grass withers, the flower fades. All flesh is like grass. Only God's promises stand forever. And Isaiah says to us in verse nine, he says, tell it on the mountain that God is here and this is where you should place your hope. The thing about hope is, it's unobtainable by every by everyone, no matter where it's obtainable by everyone, no matter where they are and what they've done. Whether in prosperity or poverty, full or empty, we can put our hope in the Lord because He is not at the mercy of this world. Paul wrote from a Roman prison, I'm not speaking in respect of need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and to abound. In every and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need, because I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I am not at the mercy of this world, the good or the bad, and my hope is not in this world. He says, I am not impressed by fortune. I'm not distressed by trouble, because I am anchored in him. And listen, that's something we love to cling to when we're in trouble, but we don't pay attention to this enough when we have good fortune. And yes, the good fortune comes from God, but that is not where our hope should be because we will be just like Solomon was and we will get too full and we will deny the Lord. God did not abandon Israel when he brought them low. He took them to powerful places in Babylon and Persia. He rebuilt the nation after years of exile because he's a good God and he provides for us. But again, what Israel, what he was trying to show Israel was that they needed him. They didn't need the land. They didn't need the money. They didn't need the power. They didn't need the security. But just like us, their nature caused them to turn from him. They turned from the God's light. They didn't keep their eyes on the candle. They didn't put their hope in him. That's why Isaiah writes in verses 21 through 23 where he, where he emphasizes, or he asks them a question that apparently they didn't know the answer to or they hadn't heard it before. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its, in, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He stretches out The heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless as in our hope is not in the places that we might would expect it to be in this world. And if we put our hope there, we are just setting our hearts up for disappointment. That's why Isaiah writes... And why he says down in verse 27, why do you say my way is hidden? My just claim has been passed over by God. Have you not known, have you not heard that you have an everlasting God? Just because your prosperity and security or your, even your happiness has faded away, is that, does that say to you that your God has faded away? No. It's so that you will keep your eyes on him more than ever. Do you know that God is bigger than all of that? That you can find contentment in him, an immeasurable and vulnerable kind of peace and joy in him that will humble you on the high, that will exalt you in the low. Uh, A few generations after Israel preached this message, when Israel uh, had resettled the land and found independence for a brief time, uh, they, they, they were still unhappy with, they were still looking for the days of Solomon. And Haggai Haggai, the prophet says, the latter glory of this house and of this land will be greater than the former. God says, I will give you peace. So they waited and they waited, but it seemed as if Haggai lied to them. Greece came in and made them slaves again. Rome came in and mocked their faith and took their freedom. And during this time, there was no prophet. The word of God was not spoken. There was no Bible. There was no hope in God. Things were just not like they used to be. And they wished and wished and wished it would be. And then ironically, Rome answered the call and gave Israel a king, but it wasn't the king like they wanted. It it was an imposter king. It was a man named Herod the Great. He wasn't even Jewish, but Herod wanted Israel to revere him like they had Solomon. So he did this very tacky thing, but clearly orchestrated by God. He replicated the structures that Solomon built. He added on to the temple and he coated the white limestone in gold veneer. It looked shiny, but it was only surface deep. Herod was proud of it, but Israel knew something wasn't right. Now they thought it would be right if they just had a real king, if they had real power, real prosperity, and they prayed and they wished and they waited, and lo and behold, God finally broke his silence, but in the most strange, unexpected of ways, A baby was born in Bethlehem in the most unceremonious of ways. He was born in a livestock stall. He was placed in a manger. But remember those words of Micah the prophet, in the smallest of cities came Israel's long expected king. Yet nobody paid attention except for some visiting ambassadors from the East who had been watching the stars and said that Israel Hadn't had a star burning this bright over them since the days of Solomon when their ancestors visited. Maybe you didn't know this, but this is what the Bible tells us about Solomon's kingdom. All the kings of the earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear the wisdom of Solomon, which God had put into his mind. Every one of them brought his present articles of silver, gold, garments, myrrh, spices. Where have we heard those before? And so these three kings, these magi from the east, showed up to see who they believed to be Israel's next king. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem and they said, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. And echoing the days of old, they fell down and worshiped him. They opened their treasures and they gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Little did Israel know, the king they had been waiting for had showed up. But he wasn't on Solomon's throne. And he wasn't as rich and powerful and glorious as Solomon was. He was much greater than Solomon. It was clear from his birth that nobody cared. Uh, nobody knew, nobody cared. Uh, and Herod the Great knew, he was a, knew that he himself was a fraud. And he and the devil tried its best to prevent the world from meeting its true savior and king. He hunted down the babies that were born during that generation from toddlers to infants. That's how bad the enemy wants to make sure that you don't unwrap the gift of Christmas. If it wasn't clear in his birth, Jesus came not to be another Solomon. He came to be somebody in something much greater. He pointed at the flowers and said, even Solomon in all of his glory has not been arrayed like one of these. He said of himself, a poor, homeless, powerless, unsuccessful by metrics of this world, He said, I tell you something greater than Solomon is here. Because in him we find what we cannot find in this world. What God proved to Israel is not obtainable in this world. And that is hope. It is salvation for hearts. It is contentment and peace and joy and freedom and victory from all that tries to enslave us. If we just keep our eyes on this light, we can have this hope. Jesus came to be this hope, to put, to, to put his light within us. Isaiah's promises are fulfilled in Jesus. Our God is here. He is with us, and we can put our hope in him and find life we've always wanted. This Advent, may we fix our eyes on him, and see what he came and died to bring us to make real for us and in us. A hope that is not fleeting and is not vulnerable. A hope that is everlasting. A a, a hope that no, salvation is not found in success, prosperity, or worldly happiness. Salvation is not found in or proven by the absence of pain or loss or hardships. Salvation is found in one who was born in the shadows, who lived in the backgrounds, who was rejected by the rich and the powerful, who was betrayed by his best friend who was humiliated by the courts who was nailed to a cross and was left in a grave but that's the point Jesus greatest victory came after he died he rose again and ascended to heaven and he sits on that throne for you and for me and he promises to you and he promises to me that the best this world gives is just gold plated it's just gold fancy veneer he says to you that he has so much more he can give us now in a deeper more fulfilling form spiritually he can give us peace joy and contentment he said to his disciples it is the spirit that gives life the flesh is no help at all the words that i have spoken to you are spirit and life the flesh is not gonna feel, satisfy you anything of this world it fades away it withers it does not last Christmas promises us that there is a gift that is not temporary, it is forever. A relationship with God that is not based on who we are or what we have or what we do. It is not prone to fade away. It anchors our hearts in his love and his grace and will carry us into eternity. And while the world wonders, when will the glory return? We know the secret, it's found in Jesus and we can experience it in our hearts, a hope that burns bright forever. We began our service by standing together in worship. We continued by lighting the candles of Advent and we will conclude our time by gathering around the Lord's table in anticipation. Jesus commanded his followers to celebrate this particular ritual, to anticipate and welcome his return. It's fitting that we began the Advent season by raising up and taking these symbols that prove to us to be the greatest gift. And it reminds us that the gift is spiritual. He gave his body and he poured out his blood so that we might take hold of and be filled by his spirit. Just as we feel the flame and we taste from the table, we can receive Salvation. In lieu of an invitation today, I want to give everybody a moment or two of silence. I want all of us to bow our heads together. I want to give you all a chance to reflect and consider where is your hope? Are your hearts, is your heart anchored in hope today? The table is open to everyone, saved or wanting to be saved. I'll be standing beside the table when we come to receive the elements. If there's something in your heart that you need to ask God to help you with, if you have a need that you wanna wrestle through and work through, if you've put your hope in the wrong places and you wanna come and take these elements and make a stand today that you are putting your hope in Jesus, in Jesus alone, I'll be waiting for you beside the table and we we'll would be glad to pray for you. But for the rest of us, for all of us, the question we must consider, Is our heart anchored in hope today? Have we put our hope in the wrong places, in the wrong promises? Are we just wishing for things to go our way? Or have we trusted in the promise of God that says, I can give you something this world cannot give? it is contentment, it is peace, it is joy, it is salvation, it is forgiveness of sins, it is freedom from those battles and it is a resurrection life that gives us a relationship with Jesus and a relationship with God that cannot be taken away and that gives us a peace that surpasses understanding. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for allowing us to be here today. Thank you for all those that have come to your house that have come to worship. Lord, I pray that everybody's hope is in Jesus. The light burns for them. The table is set for them. There is nothing preventing them from putting their hope in him. He invites them to trust in him. He has made the way. He has paid the way. He has opened the doors. We just have to anchor our hope in him. And may we all do that today. Lord, as we come to your table, we come with a heart that wants more of you and less of this world. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.